0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen. And you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Prya Pickups, handcrafted guitar pickups from down in Detroit, Rock City. Check them out at PryaPickups.com. The show is also brought to you by Fleming Properties. Steve Fleming is one of my best pals. And if you're looking to buy or sell your home in Canada or the U.S., definitely reach out to Steve at FlemingProperties.com. Alright, I've always been one of those people who loves the behind-the-scenes stuff, and as it relates to music, the stories behind the bands, the records, and the songs. I find myself telling a lot of these stories to my co-host Alex Heward on our YouTube show Thursday Night Record Club, and because people seem to find these bits of information so interesting, I've decided that I'm going to dedicate a No Sleep Till Sudbury episode to sharing some of these very interesting and sometimes fascinating stories with you, all my listener friends out there. All right, I'm just going to jump into it, but let's start off with a band that is responsible for a number of interesting facts and stories, Guns N' Roses. When Axel Rose and Guns N' Roses settled into the Rumbo Recorders studio in Los Angeles in January 1987 to record what would be Appetite for Destruction, Axel took a kind of unusual approach to singing his vocals. He insisted on singing them one line at a time. That's right. Press the record button, sing a line, stop. Record, sing one line, stop. Very different. But, with 30 million plus records sold, it seems to have worked for him. Alright, two quick bonus Appetite for Destruction facts. Guns tunes Don't Cry and November Rain were considered for release on Appetite. They were written way beforehand, but it was decided that because Sweet Child of Mine had already been slated as one of the album tracks, they didn't want more than one ballad on the record the second bonus appetite fact axel's initial idea for the cover art of appetite for destruction was the picture of the space shuttle challenger exploding that had been on the cover of time magazine the year before gaffin records outright refused saying it was in bad taste and they used a the cross with skulls instead which by the way was a nod to thin lizzy a band that axel loved when the guys in aerosmith were recording the rocks record They brought in a real bullwhip as an effect for their back-in-the-saddle track. For hours, the band tried to properly crack the whip, but nobody really knew how. And after accidentally whipping themselves and each other a number of times, leaving welts and cuts all over their bodies, they instead opted to use a cap gun instead. Another unusual effect used on The Rock's record was a sugar packet, used at the very last minute by Steven Tyler in lieu of a proper shaker. Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham was apparently having a discussion one evening with Beatles guitarist George Harrison, during which Harrison said to Bonham that the problem with Zeppelin was that the band wasn't capable of writing a proper ballad. This comment made its way back to guitarist Jimmy Page, who was not impressed, and immediately set about proving Harrison wrong. The result was The Rain Song from Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy record. The song was originally entitled Slush, and quite deliberately, according to Page himself, the first two chords of the Rain song intentionally quote Harrison's very popular ballad, Something. The Cars 1978 debut record entitled The Cars was literally a greatest hits record. Even though it contained nine songs and only spawned three singles, just What I Needed, My Best Friend's Girl, and Let the Good Times Roll, You're All I've Got Tonight, Bye Bye Love, and Moving in Stereo were also pretty popular radio favorites. Now, the deep cut, I'm in touch with your world, wasn't a hit, but there's an interesting story behind it. Car singer and guitarist Rick Ocasek wrote it, including the line, Everything you say is fiction. Keyboard player Greg Hawks misunderstood this lyric to be, Everything is science fiction during the recording of the track, and he played this spacey sound effect after that line. This confused Ocasek, and after Hawks explained, Two had a good laugh about it, and Ocasek actually changed the lyric to accommodate the mistake. The album cover of the Who's 1971 Who's Next record features a photo of all four of the members of the band walking away from this huge concrete slab, apparently having just urinated on it. In actual fact, only one band member did in fact pee on it. Whenever I tell this story to friends, they always guess Keith Moon, but it wasn't him. It was actually Pete Townsend. The remaining three markings that we do see on the record cover were the result of rainwater that had gathered in an empty film canister and was poured on the slab to create the desired effect. Also, that slab that you see on the cover was inspired by Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey movie. Other album cover ideas at the time for Who's Next included the band Urinating Against a Marshall Stack and also a photo of an overweight nude woman with the faces of the band members replacing her genitalia. Kind of glad they decided against that one. Now, German band Scorpions are no stranger to controversy with respect to their album covers, several of them being banned in various parts of the world. The original cover for their Love Drive record from 1978 features a formally dressed man and woman sitting in the back of a car, with the woman's right breast exposed and connected to the man's hand by an elongation of pink-stretched bubblegum. Scorpion singer Klaus Meine told an interviewer much later about how surprised he was that the cover caused such a negative stir in America. The reason he thought it was weird was because he claimed that of all the places in the world scorpions played in the 80s, the United States was the only country where women would flash their naked breasts from the front row at their shows. According to Mina, this happened nowhere else in the world but in America. Alright, you've heard of double entendres. Now, how about a triple entendre? For those of you who are not familiar with the expression, a double entendre is a phrase intended to have two distinctly different meanings. One obvious, and the other not so obvious. In the case of the Rush album entitled Moving Pictures, the cover art intends to position the phrase moving pictures three different ways. The first way is funny. The front cover depicts movers who are carrying pictures. They're moving pictures. Flip the record over, and on the back cover, you see the shot is expanded to show a film crew making a motion picture, or moving picture, of the entire scene. Now the third one is a bit trickier. Look at the right side of the front cover. You see people standing there watching the pictures being moved and crying. Because the pictures passing by are emotionally moving. Moving pictures three ways. Bruce Springsteen's colossal Born to Run record took more than 14 months to record, and the actual Born to Run song itself took six of those months, largely because Springsteen claimed to be struggling with hearing the song in his head, but not being able to reproduce it on tape or convey what he was hearing to anyone else in the studio. Now, there are seven known unreleased outtakes from the Born to Run sessions. Among them are two songs entitled Lonely Night in the Park and Linda Let Me Be the One. When it came time to sequence the tracks that would make it onto the record, it was initially decided one month before the August 1975 release date that the album sequence would include Linda Let Me Be the One and Lonely Night in the Park, while leaving off the Born to Run track. Producer Mike Apple then sat down for a private chat with the boss. And two days later, the track sequence was amended to include Born to Run, in favor of the aforementioned tracks. I couldn't imagine that record without the Born to Run track on it. At the 6 minute and 19 second mark of Metallica's Master of Puppets song, a David Bowie song, is intentionally quoted. That song is Andy Warhol from Bowie's Hunky Dory record. Coming out of Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett's guitar solo, we hear this brief interlude that serves as a bridge back to the final verse section of the song. It's the main riff from Andy Warhol, which was originally played on an acoustic guitar in a flamenco style. This tribute comes courtesy of late Metallica bassist Cliff Burton, who was without question the most eclectic music fan in that band, And Burton was apparently really into Bowie around the time they're recording Master Puppets, and so he and Hammett decided that it would be cool to slip in that little homage to David Bowie. The clanging that you hear at the end of Judas Priest's Metal Gods from 1980s British Steel is actually Ringo Starr's cutlery. Yep, the album was recorded at Ringo Starr's Tittenhurst Park home And in their search for items that they could use to produce sound effects, Judas Priest smashed empty milk bottles to mimic the breaking of windows and swung pool cues in front of microphones to generate sword-like sounds. For the outro to their Metal Gods track, the band decided that they needed to try to mimic the trudging footsteps of a metal god approaching. And this led them to Ringo's Kitchen, Judas Priest singer Rob Halford estimates that he lifted and dropped Star's cutlery tray at least 100 times to get that effect. So when you hear that clanging sound at the end of Metal Gods, what you're hearing are the eating utensils of a beetle being dropped on the floor repeatedly by the singer of Judas Priest. Billy Idol was born William Michael Albert Broad in a borough of London called Stanmore in 1955. He adopted the name Billy Idle after he was given the idea by his chemistry teacher, who referred to him on his report card as being Idle, spelled I-D-L-E. He thought it was funny, and actually wanted to use the I-D-L-E spelling, but figured that it wouldn't be a good idea, given one of the stars of popular British comedy troupe Monty Python, who was already named Eric Idle, I-D-L-E. So... Young William settled on the I-D-O-L spelling and, in retrospect, ultimately had the last laugh. Keen music listeners will pick up on the fact that in Billion Dollar Babies, Alice Cooper isn't singing all of the parts himself, and that in fact the song is a duet. But what they may not know is that the person accompanying Alice is none other than 60s Scottish singer Donovan. Yep, The mellow yellow, hurdy-gurdy man guy. The same guy who taught John Lennon the finger-picking guitar technique that he would use on the Beatles' White Album. That guy. Donovan sings all of the high falsetto parts on Billion Dollar Babies and lead on the first chorus, which is my personal favorite part of the song. Two bonus Billion Dollar Babies facts. With respect to the Billion Dollar Babies song, David Byrne said that it inspired... Psycho Killer. With respect to the Billion Dollar Babies album, there's another completely different version of the record out there somewhere, with alternate mixes and entirely different vocal tracks. True fact. When Black Crow's drummer Steve Gorman was on the show, I asked him about the unique Wiser Time drum riff from the Amorica record and he told me this really cool story about how that beat actually came about. During the recording of Amorica, Gorman arrived at the studio first one day, and while he was waiting for everyone else to arrive, he was just fooling around on the kit. He started playing this repetitive beat really, really fast, a weird riff that, according to him, sounded like it could have been in a Devo song. He incorporated these two taps, of the cowbell, at the end of every measure, and again, he was just fooling around, but he looked up to see singer Chris Robinson there, who asked him to keep playing it, not to stop. Robinson told him that he thought that that beat would be perfect for a new song that he wanted to bring into the sessions called Wiser Time. The whole band jammed it, and the rest is history. All right, one more. On Black Sabbath's excellent Sabotage record, the second track is a brief acoustic guitar instrumental performed by Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi called Don't Start, and in parentheses, Too Late. The peculiar name of this song was a nod to the tape operator during the sessions, whose name was David Harris. He would often get frustrated by the band, because they would always start playing before he was ready, causing him to shout, Don't start! Ugh, too late. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want to hear more of these, head over to YouTube and check out our Thursday Night Record Club show for a lot more interesting and fascinating facts related to your favorite bands. Unless, of course, you're not a rock fan. Then I wouldn't bother. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.